0: We are rather fortunate these last few days to be blessed with such a wonderfully warm and pleasant sunny weather and I was just taking the opportunity at tea time as I imagine many of you also were to enjoy the warmth and the, the vibrant greenness outdoors And just reflecting upon how when we allow ourselves to be less busy, less driven, how there's a a natural depth of appreciation, a way in which we can not just enjoy but be deeply nourished by things around us. And how easy it is also for us to live in the world and not feel that touch, not Receive that nourishment. So, this practice and this process that we're engaged in together, part of what it's about is really allowing ourselves to receive our life, to receive it and to be touched, to be nourished by it. One of my uh, first teachers, a wonderfully uh, joyful Indian man that, by the name of Munindra. He uh, was once asked why he practiced meditation and he responded, and he had spent many, many years doing very intense and uh, at times uh, demanding practices, and he said, I practice meditation so that I can see the little blue flowers in the hedgerow that I might otherwise miss. something about that simple response to see the beauty around us that we might otherwise miss to allow ourselves to be nourished by what is here because what seems really true is that it's not always possible for us to do that and there's really two ways in which it happens that that becomes difficult one of which we've spoken some already about with regard to that very strong movement we experience when we contact something that we like or we enjoy pulls us towards the future, the wish to keep it, to maintain it. It's like, well, this is all very nice, but will it be sunny tomorrow when I can go out for a longer walk? Or will it be sunny when I go home and want to see my friends or my family and do something nice outdoors? Or will it be raining again? And the way the mind goes very quickly towards the attempt to maintain or continue that which we enjoy, rather than being able to simply enjoy it. We can see that, we see that happen. And what we can also see, and what quite interestingly for me was part of the experience of going out to enjoy the sun and the scenery this evening, was walking out. And in that sense of being open to appreciation, we're also open to being touched by things that are difficult. This is, again, something we've reflected on, reflected on a little. That sense of how when we're open and sensitive and tender, and we can be touched by whatever comes. Some of what comes isn't easy to receive. And so walking out barefoot in the grass and just really enjoying the feeling of the, the grass on the soles of my feet and... Despite having encouraged you all at least two or three days ago along those lines, it was the first time I'd actually been walking bare feet in the grass. So it seems often that the role that Helen and I have involves being indoors all day. Um, so there I was, and I noticed as soon as I was walking in the grass, I was both loving the contact of the grass with the soles of my feet and worried because there were bees and wasps or something around, and thinking, I don't want to stand on one of those. And I could feel, at the same time as the sense of the enjoyment of my feet touching the ground, the sense of, "Ah," you know, I hope I don't get stung. And how there's almost an urge of, you know, is it wise to go out here and bare feet? Despite, I was really enjoying it, and yet that part of that cautious, reactive, anxious part is there. As I walked what was kind of funny was that I did stand in something that very sharply triggered the soles of my feet. And it was either a thistle or a nettle. I didn't know which. All I felt was very sharp, because it was mown grass, so it was kind of hard to see anything in there, but it just very sharply penetrating. And instantly I could see my mind thinking, I hope that was a thistle, because if it's a nettle, it's going to hurt for a long time. You know, It wasn't that bad, it was quite sharp, but it wasn't that bad. But immediately that sense of, and then right after that, I should have worn shoes. Not true, not true, I shouldn't have worn shoes. But the habit of the mind is so strong to want to protect one, protect myself. We want to so much protect ourselves from anything that impinges And this pattern, this tendency, is something that we need to look at. If we wish to really receive the beauty and the nourishment of life, we have to look at how we tend to relate to the fact that being open to life has an element of vulnerability to it. Because what seems to underlie, what seems to drive much of our mental activity and much of our worldly activity is an attempt in some way or form or on some level to try and prevent ourselves from experiencing anything that's painful or difficult or scary or threatening or unsettling. We just don't want that to happen. And there's this, this sense that we can't really enjoy where we are unless we feel totally safe and secure in the fact that nothing is going to impinge upon us. Nothing is going to rub up against us in a way that we don't wish. And the movement and the activity of life that we can see how much of our energy and how time goes into this activity. Trying to prevent ourselves having to feel something that's uncomfortable or threatening. Whether it be in social environments, in terms of physical experiences, or equally in meditation. That sense of how how much we wish to be comfortable. And meditation practice is really asking us to move or to turn in a different direction, to face and orient our life in a different way, towards an exploration of our life, towards understanding our life, rather than trying to maintain an apparent, cosy, comfortable place in which we can be asleep. What's interesting is that when we're open and exposed and vulnerable, we don't have to think about, I should be mindful now. When I was aware that there were bees in the grass, I didn't have to think, shall I pay attention to my feet as I put them in the grass? No. It wasn't like that would be a useful meditation practice. It's like, of course I want to do that, because I want to know what my foot is touching. When I have a shoe on, it doesn't really matter but then I don't feel the grass massaging my feet either. So there's a natural mindfulness there when we allow ourselves to be a little exposed. And yet, at the same time, we can recognize, and as I was just seeing arising there, that, that drive or that urge towards staying comfortable, staying safe, despite the fact that I even talk about this on regular occasions as a, something that's limiting Seeing how deeply rooted is that tendency. and as we see it, we have to ask ourselves, and this is really a question for you all in this retreat on this evening is to what extent do we start to take our spiritual practices such as meditation, yoga and other things we might engage in, to what extent do we start to take them as a way of trying to simply reenact our habitual patterns of life? to reenact the attempt to gain and avoid to be safe to not be open and touched by life and the urge that we have to do that so strong that it often unconsciously finds its way into the meditation practice or into the yoga or what we're engaging in that's a journey that's inviting us to find freedom in the midst of our life And yet, what we start to do is look for comfort and safety instead. Because this is our habit, this is our compelling conditioning, it seems. And so far as practice becomes an attempt to create comfort or safety, to produce certainty or security, it simply becomes another expression of the problem we're seeking to resolve. But fortunately, the difference is that we start to see that that's what's going on. It's pretty well inevitable, as I think I may have said to some of you in one of the groups, that we reenact our tendencies in meditation. Our, the tendencies we wish meditation to free us from, we play them out when we practice. For instance, trying hard to succeed, measuring our experience to somehow let us know that we're doing okay. And at the same time, being very, very afraid that we're not. And that somehow, if we don't do okay in the meditation, that means we're not okay as a human being. That somehow our very validity, our value, hangs on how many mindful breaths we can string together. How tragic! And yet it happens to us. We see this go on. So to look at this, to take this opportunity to reflect upon it, to see what truly serves in the situation that we're here in. This this urge to to control our experience, this need to reenact these patterns of control, is born out of a fundamental unease that we have with the condition of life. Life is a condition that isn't inherently safe, and yet it's not in, it's not inherently secure or reliable or predictable. If one thing we see in meditation, just looking at our mind, this thing that's so close to us, we see we see that fact playing out in our mind again and again. And if our mind, which is so close to us, reveals that to us, how much more true it is of everything apparently further away from us and even less within our apparent control. So there's this this urge to control experience, to make it safe, to make it predictable, to make it be the way I want it to be. And it shows itself in the form of thinking that is like, how can I produce a certain effect? How can I get it to be like this? Or make sure it's not like that. This primary tendency of the mind that we come up against again and again and again. Seeing that urge, that urgency in our meditation. Can we recognize, can we see that there's this deeply rooted inner discomfort inner unease with our human vulnerability with the very nature of what it means to be a sensitive, alive being. The sensitivity we encounter is is very significant. What happens as we meditate we notice as we practice that we start to feel more deeply we feel touched more deeply by both the beautiful things around us, but equally tender places within our hearts, places of grief or regret or sadness or fear or loneliness or frustration or confusion may arise into our experience and we feel them deeply. We're touched by them. And we might even question, as I did when I stood on the thistle, you know, is it a good idea to be open here? Do I really want to be open to this? Or would I be better off kind of staying insulated and isolated and effectively disconnected but at least comfortably numb. It it seems like an attractive possibility at one level. But there's a real cost to it and the cost is the, the loss of connection with our aliveness. The loss of connection with the nourishment of our life and of life around us. So to reflect, it's useful to reflect on just how sensitive we are as human beings. You know, it's all very well. We're sitting there in that sunshine going, ah, as I was just really 45 minutes ago, I guess, sitting in the sun and thinking, wow, it's really pleasant, isn't it, to feel the sun upon one's skin. How nice. And yet, you know, there's really quite a narrow range of temperature that's pleasant, isn't there? (laughs) A little bit hotter, and when very easy, it's too hot, you know, give me some shade. You know, if it was starting to head into the 30s, you know, God, the sun starts to become a problem. And certainly, you know, below, I don't know, 17, 15 degrees, it's, you know, we start to feel like it's cold. It's possible for temperatures to get down to something like minus 273 at the bottom end, and at the top end into thousands upon thousands of degrees centigrade. And there's this tiny little narrow band in the middle where we feel relatively comfortable. (laughs) And it's like this sensitivity is touched. Just at that simple level, it's a useful reflection to see how the odds of us inhabiting that exactly comfortable little range that we like are pretty limited, given the fact that it goes all the way from minus 273 to hundreds of thousands of degrees. That's what the range of possibility is of that experience of temperature. And, you know, we could be grateful that we turned up on a planet in which mostly the temperature isn't that far away from what's workable or livable or sometimes even enjoyable for us. You know, one could be grateful for that rather than just taking it for granted. But that sense of sensitivity, I mean, noises... Have you noticed as we get quieter how just a sound can seem to sometimes go right through one's whole body? We feel it. It's like when we're starting to become open, the world touches us, it gets in. And sometimes that's lovely and sweet. And it feels like our very heart sings in harmony with the bird song of the the songbirds. And equally sometimes when it's it's maybe the, um, the... the doves or the pigeons, and the sort of coo 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 noise they make that just goes on and on and on, and sometimes it's not quite so delightful. Or the the rooks, which don't seem to be making so much noise. Sometimes they're almost deafening here. But again, really tuning in to recognise what that sensitivity is like, and that's just on the kind of, in a way, the relatively simple and easy to work with surface level of physical impressions. As emotional beings, we're so much more sensitive. We're so easily touched by a few words from another person or just a look or a glance. And how much meaning we can interpret and add to whether someone looks at us and smiles or looks at us and looks away without smiling. And our whole day can be filled with happiness for someone we like and they smiled at me. Or our whole day can be miserable if it's someone who looked as if they didn't care for us. Just such small context touches so deeply. There's a story that somewhat illustrates the sensitivity that I rather, rather like. And it involves a, a samurai warrior in Japan who was walking down a dusty road contemplating deep spiritual things. And he came across a Zen monk sitting cross-legged on the side of the road in meditation. And there was an old Zen master who was just practicing as he liked to do on the side of the road. And the old samurai came along up to him and he said, Ah, uh, monk, I have a question. And the little old monk looked up at him. He said, Yes? He says, Can you tell me the difference between heaven heaven? And hell. And the little monk looked up at him. He said, Hmm, Samurai, your robes are dirty. You are unshaven and unwashed. Your sword is rusty. And Samurai, you smell bad. You are a disgrace to your noble order. And the samurai, this proud warrior, he hears this little pipsqueak sitting there insulting him. And he picks up, takes his sword out, and he's just about to take that monk's head off. The monk looks at him with glittering eyes. He says, that's hell. And looking down at the monk, the samurai, he realizes that this little being in front of him has just risked his own life given this profound lesson that hell is that state of reactivity and hatred where he would take another's life for just a few empty words. And he's filled with gratitude and he's so appreciative and he's just beaming down with love to this little monk who looks up at him and says, that's heaven. <laughs> And apart from the delightfulness of the story, that sense of just a few words can sometimes prompt us to murderous rage, and equally can fill us with a sense of just love, connection and appreciation. So the sensitivity, the sensitivity is something that's part of what we are, that's natural, that's appropriate, that's not some mistake. And so, why is it that we spend so much time trying to avoid the consequences of that reality? Because we do. It's like somehow we find it hard to relax in the presence of a world that touches us. Hopefully what we're learning to do here, amongst other things, is to relax in the midst of where we are. Stop trying to get something or get someone and just really open into life as it is, as we meet it. But it's hard to rest, it's hard to relax, isn't it? It's like just as we start to find some ease or space, we notice ourselves getting busy with something. And it seems like there's almost something, almost always something we need to get busy with. Even if it's just random thoughts that don't seem to be going anywhere or any, of any significance, as someone was commenting today. They don't really need to be thought, these thoughts, he said. They don't need to be resolved or go anywhere, but it just happens. It just goes on. And it's like we can't quite be at peace with the condition of life. remember some years ago I was teaching a retreat in the foothills of the Pyrenees in France. And uh, it was this beautiful scenery, gorgeous sunshine, delightful ex- situation. One would think looking at it from a distance. But what was happening is I was sitting there with this beautiful view, wonderful scenery. It was a small biting fly was buzzing around me and trying to land. Every time it would land and start to bite, I would just gently brush it off. Gently brush it off gently brush it off. And I could not enjoy sitting there. It was just not possible to enjoy this condition. Because although it was beautiful, it was warm, it was lovely, I'd had a good lunch, this little fly kept coming around. And, you know, of the surface of my body, about 99% of it was being bathed by pleasant sunlight sensation, you know, warm sunshine. Well, actually not 90% because I had some clothes on. But, um, but the little spot where the fly would land, it was just like, no. And I noticed myself, because you know I was trying to be respectful and gentle, I didn't want to harm the fly. But nor did I want it to be biting me. So I was brushing it off and it would land. And I was slowly getting tighter and tighter and tenser and more and more contracted. It's like, Ugh! And at some point I realised what was happening. I thought, oh, okay, can you just relax with this? Can you just let this happen? You've either got a choice. You're either going to, that thing is going to, Keep you reacting, or you know, you see the thought wanting to kill it, which I didn't want to do, but I could see the thought wanting to. (laughs) Or, okay, you've had a nice lunch. Maybe it's maybe it's his turn or her turn. And what was really interesting was once I actually let that little sharp spot of pain sensation happen, it was really insignificant. It really wasn't very much at all. It was just a little sharp. Nothing. And then nothing. And the sense of just, oh, I can relax. Actually I can enjoy being here now. It was amazing. Just how we shift when we just when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to feel, to be touched. But of course, that's not what we necessarily do most of the time, is it? Sometimes we remember but more often we don't because it's not just about allowing ourselves to be touched by a little bite. It's more there's almost something like the feeling insulted by the universe that this is happening. It's like this shouldn't be like this. It's not okay. And that if this can happen, well, you know, so what if the next thing that turns up is a, you know, a small rodent, you know, and and that wants to take a bite (laughs) followed by a, you know, A sort of a a large creature that's looking hungry. Am I just going to sit here and let this thing eat me? You know? And that that whole sense of I can't let this happen because what if I stay open and everything happens that could possibly ever happen and I'm overwhelmed or destroyed? It's like there's this urge and this, this wish that drives so much of our activity to get to a place of reliable certainty and safety and security where nothing ever is going to happen to me again, where I will never be impinged upon, impacted, where my sensitivity will never be violated or or I, and I will never have to, to feel that which I don't want to feel. And because we so strongly... Wish for that. We're trying to organize the world. We're trying to organize ourselves. So much of our thinking is about somehow trying to create that place where we can come to a rest that will be safe, secure, comfortable, and unthreatening. But when we reflect on our life, when we look at how life actually is, there is no security. There is no Safety. There's no way we can stop life getting in. And in fact, the only thing that is guaranteed, the only certainty in life, the only thing that is absolutely secure is the fact that one day we will die. And so there we are. That's the thing you can rely on. That is the basis of certainty. Does it make us feel relaxed and comfortable? Mm -hmm. Does the one thing that can offer you reliable guarantees make you feel like you hoped certainty would? Probably not. Because what does that mean? It's like that is the ultimate impingement upon our comfort, it would seem. And yet it is the only thing that's for sure. The fact of our death is for sure. And yet the time of it is unknown. So again, that... Uncertainty comes right back in. Nothing else has guaranteed us in life. Nothing. And yet, much of the time, we really don't want to let that in. We don't want to take that on board. But what if we feel into it? What if we let ourselves really take that in? The nature of life is vulnerability. The only guarantee is that one day all this that we call being alive ceases. So what makes sense if that's the truth? If that's how it is? What really makes sense in life? Does it make sense to keep trying to avoid the things that may impinge upon us in a way that's uncomfortable or unsettling? Because there's this process of trying to get certainty and security so we don't have to feel vulnerable but the only real security makes us feel profoundly vulnerable the only real certainty is actually the very root of that vulnerability the fact of death so we can't escape there is no way out of this on those terms So if we can't get out of it in terms of escape from this reality, what would it be like to go into it, to turn towards it, to really enter wholeheartedly into this reality, this conditionality of life that is uncontrolled, unreliable, uncertain, unpredictable, where we don't know tomorrow what will happen. We don't know what will happen even in the next few minutes, whether our body will stay comfortable or start to hurt. Whether our mind will stay bright and interested or start to get fuzzy or reactive. We just don't know that. And what would it be to face or to meet to, or to turn to your life? Not as something that you have to sort of shrink back from, but to really come with an open sense of exploration. That there's something, there's a keenness, there's an aliveness that's there when we open to the fact of our vulnerability. Rather than resisting it, rather than shying away from it, so much of what drives life is anxiety and fear. As a, an attempt to avoid vulnerability, we, we, we get into these patterns of reactivity. Anxiety is a sense of unwillingness to accept the uncertainty of life. And we encounter it, we see it. And what happens with anxiety or with fear is it takes us away from where we are. Or it attempts to. But we get lost in thinking about the future that we're anxious in regard to. And yet the experience is happening right here. Anxiety or vulnerability or fear. If we can come back to where we are and feel the experience... So go into the vulnerability, into that. We can find that there's, there's a ground here for us that we can abide in. That we don't have to become disconnected. That we can stay open in the presence of that experience. Helen Keller, who was who lived an amazing life despite being blind and deaf, she once said, Security is mostly superstition. It does not exist in nature, and nor do the children of mankind experience it as a whole. In the long run, avoiding danger is no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure, or it is nothing. Now, that's not saying that when we're standing on the side of the road and there's a car coming towards us, we think, oh, okay, this is, looks like an adventure coming towards me. <laughs> of course, there's some intelligence involved in being able to step out of the way. But so much of what we're reacting to or trying to avoid isn't really what's happening, it's what's arising in our memory. And our reaction is being fueled by our history rather than our present experience. And so, coming into the present experience to really examine what is at the core of this vulnerability? What is at the core of this experience of trying to avoid? And what we see if we do that, if we look, if we start to see, it somehow is configured around a sense of something that we're trying to protect, that we conceive of and imagine to be who we are or what we are. the sense of being somehow at the center of all this experience needing to defend ourselves from and define ourselves by what is happening leads to this ongoing struggle this ongoing process and it's like there's this message that just keeps coming in that says look out it's scary over here it's dangerous over there be careful about this look what happened the last time you know and that that kind of that whole sense of of me that's looking out fearfully at the world trying to t- hide or trying to defend trying to avoid being touched by life and have we ever really examined what's going on here have we looked at that carefully because maybe what's happening isn't quite exactly as what we might have imagined as happening that sense of me that so needs or thinks it needs to be defended. Maybe it's not quite like that. A little bit like something that happened a few years ago here that I found rather interesting. Um, the managers, as often doing, looking for ways to sort of conserve resources and protect the welfare of the planet in different ways had uh, written a message on some of the toilet rolls suggesting that they not be thrown away and you can see the later version of that same message in any of the bathrooms in the house but one occasion I uh, walked into the bathroom just after this had happened and there was this message and it said save me (laughs) and I thought wow that's interesting (laughs) and I thought I wonder what would happen if someone didn't understand what this meant. It says, Save me. And they might think, This is a message from someone. Someone's in danger. Someone needs help. Someone's trapped here. Maybe that's what's going on up in the bell tower that you've got a trap door and there's no ladder, and we've wondered what's been going on. And then you go to another tower, and there's another message that says, We can be saved. There's more than one. We can be saved. And we could get really concerned, couldn't we, if we didn't know what was going on by that message. And what does it mean? It means, be careful, pay attention here. There is something that we could do that's skillful, which is don't flush this or throw it in the rubbish. Because it can be recycled. But if we don't understand what that message is saying, we could get really worried about some. Poor retreatant who's been locked away in the tower for years and the only safe place for them to leave a message where they won't be caught is in the privacy of the bathroom. (coughs) What would it be if we were to question the messages that keep arising in our mind? That say, help, save me, I'm in danger, look out. Get me out of here. Stop. it's like they just come they just come but we never wrote them ourselves and yet we believe that we have to follow what they say we believe that they refer to something or someone who's in danger when actually what those message of it when when there is some fear or anxiety or concern arising or some vulnerability being exposed what the message means is pay attention here give attention to this experience what we tend to do is I don't want to look at that we look away I don't want to have that experience it's as if we went into the bathroom and saw this thing the message saying save me we thought better leave it's dangerous in here the last person here left a message save me and you know they've disappeared So, if I stay in here, the same might happen to me. But what if we were to look at the message as saying simply, pay attention to this? Pay attention to this experience. Because if we do, what we'll see is that the whole idea we have of our existence needs to be questioned, needs to be looked at, needs to be examined very deeply. Very carefully. And what is that? What is the basis of the sense of me being here? It's not to say that I or you aren't here, but the sense of me that gets so caught up in it all. It's like we notice sights and sounds, smells, tastes, bodily touch, or sensations and thoughts. We experience this world of input or information or sensory Sort of material, we could say. And this is what comprises our experience. This is what happens. There isn't anything that's happened to any of you today that you've experienced that wasn't a sight, a smell, a taste, a touch, or sensation. I missed one, haven't I? A smell or a thought. Did I miss hearing? Sight, smell, taste, touch, hearing, thought. You know what I mean. And within that, there tends to be the sense of all of this is mine, or it's happening to me, or it somehow belongs to me, or it refers to me. The sense that I am the owner of all of this. And yet, that is simply another thought that says I am the owner of all of this. There isn't anything in there that you can point to that says This is the permanent thing to whom all those other things are happening. There's nothing there like that. And yet we have this really strong and persistent sense that I'm in here and it's happening to me. But no, it's just all of this happening. All of this experience is happening. And if there isn't something that we can point to that's fixed or steady in all of that, if we see how it keeps changing, doesn't make sense. To define ourselves by this. Because it is this process that's unfolding, that's revealing this vulnerability, this uncontrollability, this flux and flow and movement of life, that we somehow feel in a both an identified or an ownership relationship to, and at the same time an oppositional relationship to, because we feel threatened by it or challenged by it. And together with that sense of it being me or it being mine that goes that goes on that arises for us, there's also the sense of of me doing it. It's like somehow I made this happen. And how much struggle goes on in your meditation because you feel like somehow you made it happen. That thing that was really painful or unpleasant that passed through your mind, or the distractedness, or the reactivity. So much the sense of, it's me, I'm doing this. And yet if you look, we see it's happening. We see it's happening. We see it keeps happening. And we so much measure ourselves and value ourselves on the basis of something that's simply unfolding. And we get frustrated, we struggle with this reality. But the most important things, like the breath just happen by themselves. We're not doing it. The digestion process, you put food in your mouth, sure, we get involved with that, finding it and putting it in. But when we put the food in our mouth, look what it does. Its body just grows. Sometimes it grows in ways we'd rather it didn't. Or grows hair in places we think it shouldn't. But it's kind of alive. It just does what it does. And yet there's a sense we often have of me doing it. It's a little bit like this image that I remember one of my teachers first describing many years ago. And he said it's a bit like going on an ocean journey on a boat. And you're sailing along and there's the wind and the waves and the, the current and all of that. And you steer this way and you steer this way. And sometimes the boat seems to go in the direction you want and sometimes it seems to go in a different direction. But you're really working hard on the navigation and the steering and all of that. And then at some point, you start to wonder about why it doesn't always happen the way you think it should. So you go down and examine the equipment down below and you see that the steering wheel wasn't actually attached to the rudder. And all that time you were trying to go this way or go that way, That wasn't the reason it was going that direction. It was to do with the wind and the waves and the currents of life. There's something scary about that. Something unsettling. It's not to say, and I'm not suggesting that we don't have any influence. Of course we do. And a lot of what we're engaging in here is intended to be able to develop the capacity we do have to profoundly and positively influence the direction of our life but that's very different than being able to be in control of it that's very different than somehow holding it tightly with the demand that it conform to our ex- our expectation or our wish and so Can we really allow ourselves to abide in this uncertainty, this vulnerability, this conditionality of life in which we do not control what comes or when it comes? And we do not control what goes or when it goes. What we can do, and of course this is so important, is we can learn to respond skillfully to what comes. And respond skillfully and wholesomely to when things go. That we can learn and that we are learning in the journey of practice. But in terms of what comes and what goes, this is not given to us to determine. This is not what we are in charge of. And to let go of that, to let go of that is to enter into a a vulnerability that is vast but that in its vastness is also released from the the tightness, from the limitation, from the sense of contraction and withholding of oneself from life. Withholding of one's openness and sensitivity and ability to be touched by life. To not hold that back. To release that. To allow that to be there. Is to begin to. And to be able to. Receive your life. And the richness. And the depth. And the beauty. And the majesty. And the mystery. Of what this is. To be alive. To receive it. We have to be open and vulnerable. And be willing not to. To be in charge of the process. And yet be committed to being present for it. Wholehearted in our willingness to be there. To receive it. To not give in. Or abandon ourselves to the habits and the reactions of avoiding. Of pulling away. Of shrinking. Shriveling. And to see that that whole sense of vulnerability, when we start to really look at what we think about or conceive when we have the idea of death. And how that, when when we pull away from death, which is, as I said, the ultimate expression of our vulnerability. When we pull away from it, we tighten with fear and anxiety and contraction. But when we open to it, when we turn towards it, something quite different happens. And so we're asked to go deeper inside our lives. There's a poem by a Native American elder, Redhawk, I'd like to read, entitled, The Time Comes When It Is Easier to Die. He writes, We have to go deeper inside, like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we have had enough, and it is no longer worth it to get up out of the bed. The morning is cold, the grey clouds move in low like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper, through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place, because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die, or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you, Likewise men, I guess. And your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go grey and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it is easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you. And then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken. While death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but left only holding a bag full of bones. When we believe that what we are is this body, And the thoughts that move through this mind. When we identify with that, then we are bound to death. Because this body and this thinking mind, having been born, must die. This is inevitable. This is its nature and is unstoppable and unavoidable. And any attempt to avoid this is a vain and hopeless fantasy. And yet, although the body and the mind dies, when we start to see through the identification and beyond the compulsion to believe that this is what we are, when we allow ourselves to rest wholeheartedly in the simple presence of conscious life through which all of this moves and flows, What we open ourselves to is the touch of the deathless. The truth of life that is not born and does not die. That is not defined by the content of our experience. That cannot be taken by death. And so far and so long as we believe in ourselves as something separate, independent and apart, from the totality of life. We are subject to that which we have identified and separated out from that totality as being what we are. We are subject to the loss of that. But to see, to look, to explore for yourself what is here, what is revealed, When we enter where we are, without preconceptions, without agendas, without any idea of what we are or what is happening here and yet wholeheartedly and willingly committed to this life that's happening right now, unstoppably, unshakably. To enter life unconditionally, making no dem- demands from it, but giving yourself to it. And all its vulnerability and all that comes with that. If we can enter life in the spirit, if we can enter this moment in that way, We can for ourselves discover what lies beyond and yet all through everything and moment and experience of our life that is not bound to and yet not apart from any experience. And this is the invitation of your practice. This is the invitation of Dharma teachings. So let's sit quietly for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.